had only lived in Ethiopia probably six to seven years of my life. But what I do remember, and this is the obviously the view of, you know, six, seven-year-old me, and it's just playing with my friends in my neighborhood and going to this local, you know, now that I think about it, it was like a tin shop. It was a, <laughs> it was a cute little store made out of tin and getting my favorite cookies, which had something written in Arabic, but... Do you remember what kind of cookies they were or what they tasted like? It's just a sweet cracker-like cookie. I don't exactly know how to, it's not. It's like a sugar cookie, but from uh, the Middle East. There is a cute little photo of a baby. Like on the packaging? On the packaging. The box is red. I remember that much. I do remember also, how can I say? I feel like, I, I feel like I'm shaming myself or putting myself out there, but... One very important memory, at least, is um, I, I really loved my younger brother, and I loved him so much that one time I took some coins from my mother's room, and I got him this like set of cookies, because that's what he wanted. And then I got in trouble later on, but that, those are some of the memories. It's just stealing cookies from my younger brother. So when you got in trouble... When your parents found out that you um, had stolen their change to buy your brother cookies, what what did they do? Oh, I'm not going to say. That's between my mom and I. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> no worries. Cultural differences, discipline means many different things in other countries. Just know I learned my lesson. Welcome to episode one of Friction Shift. I'm Jess Suffers, and the cookie thief you've been listening to is Lena Tabebe. Lena is the founder and orchestrator of Ride to DC, a 300-mile bike travel event that was conceived during the social upheaval of 2020. She founded it as a way to build community around the protection and celebration of Black lives. Hi, my name is Helena Tabebe. I am an Ethiopian-born American, or Michigan particularly, raised um, human being. (laughs) Lena has such a distinct memory of her first foray into rebellion because, well, we all do. We all remember who was in charge when we were too sticky-fingered to be making the rules for ourselves. But as we grow older, the figures behind all the rules and norms we follow are harder to pin down and tougher to visualize or sometimes even name. I don't have to tell you that the past three years have been intense. A broad variety of forces have come out of the woodwork and significantly altered the way we're able to move through the world. Some of those forces were inevitable and necessary, while others kind of seemed like a cruel joke. It's been confusing and heartbreaking and several other vague synonyms for painful, but What we want to explore in this six-part series is what these specific forces are, where they came from, and how they've impacted our personal agency as cyclists and recreationalists. We'll be looking at the history of the recreation industry, its current supply chain struggles, bike infrastructure, law, and so much more. We'll tell these stories through the lens of the cyclist, as well as through Lena. We had a bike as kids, but I don't necessarily remember riding a bike 
I think I might have learned at such a young age that I probably forgot. I was a natural. <laughs> You'll be hearing from her in each episode. For this series, it's all about bikes. We love them, we ride them, we talk to other people who ride them, but a lot of the things that make bikes great, community, travel, group rides, were really off limits beginning March of 2020. We're here to tell the stories of a decade that's already defined by a sense of loss, change, and honestly, hopefully, progress. And what we want to talk about in this first episode is authority figures. Specifically, we want to look at how the authority figures within the U.S. recreation industry got to be where they are in the first place. Who's calling the shots and dictating the norms? Who is it benefiting? And who's trying to shake things up in a way that has real staying power? But before we get into all that, let's hear from Lena. As we mentioned up top, Lena is the founder of an annual 300-mile protest ride that originates in New York City and ends in Washington, D.C., Not only is Lena an activist and event planner, she has a rich and vibrant story to tell about her place in this community of cyclists. In each of our six episodes, we're going to introduce you to Lena little by little, telling her personal story as a cyclist and a global citizen one installment at a time. And what better place to start than with childhood, where her original authority figures, her parents, reigned supreme. Yeah, my parents are, I mean, I love them, but they're very weird. You know, especially in, in, you know, being from, being Ethiopian Eritrean, there are sometimes very strict roles, roles that uh, parents have to play. The father is usually the breadwinner of the family, um, usually extremely strict, emotionless, is the provider, and that's how they show their love and affection. But my dad was like the complete opposite. He was the, you know, for most of my life, my dad was either getting his PhD, writing a book or uh, publishing. So he was always on the computer. And then when he was with us, he was actually tender and emotional while my mom was the complete opposite. Like my dad was, of course, the breadwinner. He played that role. But my mom was the strict one. My mom was the head of the house. Um, Whatever my mom said was what we listened to. Um, Sometimes we'd use our dad as like our, you know, support, Uh, but he barely won any arguments with my mom. Um, uh, And my mom also wanted to be independent. You know, Um, she didn't necessarily finish college, She started college actually later on in life. She married my dad at a young age, which was relatively normal at that time, and then was a housewife for so long. And then once we were in the United States for a few years, she basically was like, I want to make my own money. I don't want to have to always depend on you. And so she started working. So that at that time might have been a bit radical, for my mom to do such a thing. That was like the dynamic, my home dynamic. So what what kind of were their hopes for you as you were growing up? It's I, from what it from what it sounds like, you had the freedom to kind of like tell them how you felt and kind of be outspoken. Did you feel that way when you were a kid? Like did you feel like you were able to have a lot of self-expression? 
Well, I was the only girl, the only daughter, and I was the middle child. And I'm not using those cards, but I, <laughs> but I will say, <laughs> I was definitely treated differently because of both. A woman in some traditions are different than others. Um, I used to complain to my parents every once in a while when I get like really upset with them. I'd say, "You're treating me like a second-class citizen. I have rights too." What I was trying to say was that sometimes in some cultures, the the men have a little bit more power than women. That's not only seen in Ethiopia, but in many other countries. There are times where, you know, my brothers could do more or hang out with more friends than I could because I was a the daughter. I was a female, so I was more at risk. From my understanding of the Ethiopian slash Eritrean culture, it's better to be like everyone else uh, rather than stand out, which also includes your opinion. When you think of what's most important in Ethiopia, the group matters more than the individual. Rather, And it's different, I think, in the United States where the individual matters more than the group. But when it comes to, you know, my thoughts and feelings at home, my parents did push my brothers and I to think freely. And we were to we were kind of like encouraged to be intellectuals or to just think outside of the box. Um, but there was always that restriction. Like I couldn't talk to my parents about certain topics like boys or relationships because that they were they were not extremely conservative but they were very conservative so it was hard for me to kind of speak to them on what they would call worldly or secular topics when she was still quite young lena and her family moved from ethiopia to michigan as you can imagine michigan was a stark contrast that the entire family had to adjust to and it was more than just winter and American customs. As they move from one system of government to the other, their relationship with authority figures changed as well. I would say that in Ethiopia, I, I didn't necessarily... I, I just had a, such a naive view of the world. Like, I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> when I was... I think the year, the year, actually, that I was born, the year that I was born was the year that the government had transitioned from basically a pro-soviet military regime to the the title of the new the new government system was called the ethiopian people's revolutionary democratic front it changed from two extremely different forms of um, government and so that was the year that i was born 1991 and I was born in a time where the country was going in quote-unquote transition. And so the way that people viewed authority, the, the way that Americans view authority is different from, let's say, another country that has a different economic and government system, right? My view of authority as, you know, as someone who had just come from Ethiopia is different than that of me now who's lived in America for most of my life. But when it comes to facing authoritative figures, authority figures, figures of authority, as an Ethiopian American, as a new Ethiopian American, like talking, if you, in Ethiopia, if you were to say something back in the day, and I have cousins who have experienced this, if you were to say or write something that goes against 
the leaders, you had a high chance of going to jail. That has happened to my to some family members where they were journalists and they said something that the government didn't approve. When you look at the life that we have here in the United States compared to and you know the excess the accessibility when you think about just quality of life when you think about rights and so on in the United States compared to a lot of other countries there there are more benefits but there are also a lot of issues that this country has to face the point that i'm trying to say is when it comes to freedom of speech i think we should absolutely feel grateful that we have the opportunity to say exactly what we want to say. Does it mean that you should say it? I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> appreciate the fact that you can. As Lena's life in the United States blossomed and began to take shape, she watched a growing change in her parents, a fundamental shift in her original authority figures that she says was a long time in the making. And so then, you know, you grew up, you went to college, you did your own thing, and you became a teacher. And so did those relationships either with your family or even with yourself and how you negotiate societal norms, did that change or shift again when you moved to New York? I lived in a very conservative, sheltered environment, could only hang out with probably like three or four people. And they were all East Africans that my parents knew. <laughs> and that was it. I think once once I started going to school, I mean, to college, I think it was actually when I moved out that they realized that I wasn't this girl that needed to be protected. Um, and there were events that happened throughout life where they realized, oh my goodness, our kids aren't Ethiopians. They are this mix. They're they're American, yes, but they're also Ethiopian. They're this hybrid of these two cultures. And I think they realized, like, oh, goodness, I don't think we, I think we sheltered them too much. And we, which we pushed this idea that they're Ethiopian and they're now in this real world where they're realizing in this society, like, as a young kid, my parents didn't act- actively teach us the that we were black we were ethiopian in their eyes and that that was who they are we didn't have the talk uh which is like a conversation that that some african-american parents would have with their children it's not about the birds and the bees it's about hey (laughs) you are a person of color your skin means something in the society. And because it means something, you need to be careful when you do this, 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 and this. This is how you react in these situations. And sometimes you might have people that will say or do these things to you, and this is how you should react. So we didn't necessarily have that talk because number one, my parents didn't know that they should have had that they should have had that talk with us at a young kid because we were from a completely different culture where everyone looks the same. The concept of race, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but it's not relevant because everyone is black. And we also, by we, I mean my parents also kind of got to a point where they're like, okay, we need to change 
our mindset a little bit more um, to fit into the place that we are in, to fit into our environment, because the societal rules of Ethiopia, not all of them are going to apply here. We need to be a little bit more open-minded. We need to understand and accept more people that are different from us. And we need to be able to also accept the fact that our children will have their own path to open their eyes to see that they were that in this in this country they were more than just Ethiopian. Hang tight and we'll hear more from Lena in each of our upcoming episodes. A huge thanks to her and the entire team at Ride to DC. If you'd like to learn more about Lena or the Ride to DC event, you can find them on Instagram at Ride to DC. I can actually go take a walk down by the lake here in Burlington, Vermont, and appreciate the beautiful sunset while also remembering the legacy that maybe even a hundred years ago, if I had been here, I might not have been able to do that. And doesn't that make it even just that much more sweeter? This is Dr. Carolyn Finney. Presently living in Burlington, Vermont, traditional home of the Abenaki peoples. In this first episode, we want to tell the stories of the U.S. recreation industry's rise to prominence as well as the people, politics, and brands that were at the helm. To do that, it's important to understand the cultural context that surrounds the outdoor renaissances of the last century. Dr. Finney has devoted her career to studying the ways in which America's natural world has been racialized, and by extension, politicized. She's the author of the book Black Faces, White Spaces. It's a deep dive into how our country's history of racial violence shapes our current cultural understanding of who should and can access what we all know as the great outdoors. You know what I tell people? I I do this work because I love it and I build this public platform and I like to show up and give talks around it and bring a performance element to it and tell stories and write about it and engage with people with what is often a really challenging subject. You know, when you talk about issues of difference and power and privilege and all that good stuff. But also I've been telling people lately, I do it because it's self-healing, you know, so it's not only, you know, thinking about who we are collectively, but also thinking of myself and and the places where I feel broken in my own life around these conversations and and my ability and or right, and I say that loosely, to be anywhere at any time as myself. I'll stop now. (laughs) So much like Lena, Dr. Finney's earliest memories of the natural world were largely shaped by the adults that monitored that connection, and by extension, the social and political structures that those adults either chose to adhere to or were pressured to adhere to. It's like all of us, you know, if if somebody asks you, you know, who are you and what kind of motivates you to do what it is you do, you know, we we might think about where we grew up, the influences in our lives. And so thinking about nature, that nature outside of myself, which is how I was taught it was before I came to understand that actually we're part of that as well. 
Um, I always talk about where I grew up um, in Westchester County, 30 minutes outside of New York City on a beautiful, 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 beautiful um, 12 acre estate that belonged to a very wealthy Jewish family. Dr. Finney was adopted at a very young age. The couple who would become her parents worked on the estate in Westchester as groundskeepers, chauffeurs, and cleaners. African-Americans who grew up in the South, who grew up very poor, and as part of the Great Migration in the 40s, um, they went North because my father wasn't finding a lot of job opportunities, even though he was a veteran. He had just returned from the Korean War. Growing up on the estate had its perks. She had access to flower and vegetable gardens, fruit trees, ponds, and a long driveway perfect for laps on her bicycle. Uh, This is where we learned to play outside. There were woods on the property. This is where I learned to swim for the first time. This is where, because there was water on the property, this is where I learned to ride my bike for the first time. And the other piece of the story that I always have to say is that this estate was in a very wealthy, all-white neighborhood, you know, and we were the only family of color in the neighborhood. And we were there because my parents worked for you know, the family, not because they owned the land. And I try to say these things. And what I say to try more and more with audiences is to say that I work hard not to judge, but it doesn't mean I'm not discerning about that, you know, and I am biased about it, right? I have my own thoughts looking back on that, you know, both the privilege of getting to play in a place like that, as well as telling the story when I was nine years old, you know, getting stopped by a white policeman as I was walking home from school who was asking where I was going. And when I gave him the address, because I was right around the corner from the house, he just looks at me and says, oh, do you work there? And, you know, and I'm nine. We wanted to talk to Dr. Finney about a particular time in our country's history in which the Civil Rights Act and the Wilderness Act were being developed and implemented simultaneously, but also completely autonomously from one another. I'm wondering if you can kind of give us an idea of what you see the social landscape looking like in the U.S. at the beginning of of that era, of that outdoor renaissance. If you hit the 60s, you get to the 60s. In the beginning of the 60s, Jim Crow was still happening. I mean, all the turmoil was happening, all the tension around that, all the resistance to it. And, you know, change was in the air. And I would say change has always been in the air ever since Christopher Columbus lost his way. The 60s, you know, you also had this sort of environmental moment, as I understand it, that folks like Howard Zanizer, you know, very thoughtful people who were thinking about the term wilderness, you know, ideas coined by people like John Muir, the conservationist John Muir, um, the idea of conservation, folks like Gifford Pinchot, who founded for the idea of forest management. You had all of these really thoughtful, passionate people of European descent, you know, who had both access, opportunity, and they also, and, and passion for and love for the outdoors that were thinking about how we might be in better relationship. And the question that I always ask is, and who was the we they were thinking about? As a quick primer, the Wilderness Act was written in 1964, primarily by Howard Zanheiser, who worked in an executive capacity at the Wilderness Society. In its own words, the act was created to establish a national wilderness preservation system for the permanent good of the whole people. This preservation system would select nearly 800 national sites to become federally designated wilderness areas and someday make up the lands managed by entities we know today as the National Park Service, Bureau of Land Management, 
Fish and Wildlife Service, and U.S. Forest Service. In that very same year, 1964, the Civil Rights Act enacted the landmark legislation that prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It ended segregation in public places and banned racial discrimination in hiring and employment practices. On one level, you have this, you know, conversation about black and white. It doesn't necessarily address what's going on for indigenous people, what, what's going on for people who consider themselves multiracial, biracial, immigrants from Asia and Africa. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of difference in the room, even if all I'm talking about is race and nationality, right? So that's happening there. But we're having this kind of black and white conversation you have Howard Zanizer and his people creating this act, this wilderness act, with this really wonderful language of how we might be and what we might find if we can kind of be in these open areas and respect them and kind of the deep spiritual connection we have. But they're making no explicit reference to the fact that, and how are you supposed to do that if you're black, brown, poor? from certain geographical regions of this country. I'm not even mentioning, you know, LGBTQ mobility issues. You know, there's so many things that I don't even mention in there and they're definitely not mentioning it. And what really struck me is how in 1964, when the Civil Rights Act came out, the Wilderness Act came out the same time. As somebody who had gone to school, thought of myself as fairly real, well read as a kid and as a teenager into my twenties because I loved books. I didn't know doodly squat about the Wilderness Act. I, I didn't know the Wilderness Act, but I knew about the Civil Rights Act because the Civil Rights Act, I understood, impacted me and my family directly. You know, So my parents who have a high school education knew about the Civil Rights Act. We could see the fruits of that labor you know, um, and what it might mean um, for us, people who look like us, our community. You know, the Wilderness Act, uh, I want to just say, we didn't know that that had anything to do with us. Actually, we didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. They didn't know about it. <laughs> you know. I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking, oh, how interesting is it that the civil rights movement in part was about having access in the same way. And that includes access to the outdoors. And then we have this outdoor movement. People are going outdoor in droves. And this environmentalist movement where we have this wilderness act that has the privilege of just kind of putting on some blinders and saying, oh, isn't this great? It's for everyone. We're going to ignore 400 years of disenfranchisement because that's easy. And we don't, we don't need to interact with these other movements that are happening at the same time. I like to think that in, in, for Howard Zanizer and his people, it was just this kind of you know, thinking more broadly and collectively who we can be despite our differences. And I want to say he had the privilege of thinking like that because his difference didn't matter, right? He had access. He had opportunity, right? And that didn't make him a bad person. I'm just saying, I always say privilege has the privilege of not seeing itself, right? We're all biased in various ways. And those who are in a position to decide for better or for worse, how we should be in relationship to non-human nature. I mean, how can I say this? We're largely, predominantly, almost all white. And there's a way within which 
when you hear terms like, you know, environmentalism is a white thing or, you know, that idea of whiteness being applied to nature in the United States in a particular way, what I think it's actually pointing to is that historically, who's, who got to make the decisions? Dr. Finney says that there's no denying that our country was built on the systems of oppression that relied heavily on the erasure of indigenous communities and basically anyone who wasn't white. Considering the timing of the Wilderness Act and the subsequent return to nature, it's quite easy to see the echoes of these systems mirrored in the legislation, politics, and marketing that surrounds it. People don't forget. There's something about trauma. And I will say I believe all of us. There's a legacy of trauma for all of us, no matter how we identify and who we are in this country. I think this country was built on trauma as well as on dreams and and potential and possibility. And there's something to be said around the conversation of land, environment, who gets to decide how we're in relationship, questions of representation, who gets to decide who counts, who has value, whose ways of engaging and understanding and knowing non-human nature count the most, right? That if you are Black, Brown, Indigenous in particular in this country, you've got four or 500 years of proof of how you've been discounted. Four or 500 years, four or 500 years, which doesn't mean you can't love nature, which doesn't mean you can't be invested in it, which doesn't mean that you, aren't, that you don't love it. It just means that that relationship has been curated, has been dictated in a very particular way. And you have to wrestle with that. I have to wrestle with that truth. And I'm aware that I have bias as well, right? So some of that is my own bias, that it's my work to do, right, to get by. And some of it is history. (laughs) History. And it's really hard to ignore 400 years of it. concept that Dr. Finney alludes to here, of a curated or dictated relationship with the outdoors, certainly didn't manifest by accident. It was, and still is, meticulously designed by the industry that has risen up around what we recognize as acts of recreation. How that industry grew, what its priorities were, and what kinds of people were at the helm can tell us a lot about where the modern outdoor community places value. I'm interested in what kinds of meanings that American consumers who buy billions, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of outdoor clothing and equipment every year, what kind of meanings they attach to those goods and what they think they're going to say about their identity. My name is Rachel Gross. I'm a professor and historian at the University of Colorado, Denver, where I have the lucky position of getting to focus on the history of the outdoor industry. The outdoor industry often talks about boom cycles. Periods when a surge of people showed their interest in the outdoors by buying an influx of gear. The mountain bike boom of the early 90s, for instance. The Lance Armstrong effect on road cycling around the world in the early aughts. But these boom cycles have a long history in the U.S. and can be tied to historical events, changes in technology, and cultural movements. The earliest came in the 1920s with the popular uptake of the car. 
as cars became more affordable and you know there were more cars for every uh person who was an american they remade the world of leisure so outdoor recreation was a part of that remaking of leisure and that meant that there were millions of people who went car camping or auto camping as they called it in the 1920s so that's really the first boom and what kinds of leisure practices people had in the post-World War II era, and then again, 20 years after that, really draw on that earlier decade. Part of why there was a boom before World War II in the 1920s was thanks not just to cars, but also to the federal government being willing to sponsor building recreational infrastructure. So things like roads or campsites helped to encourage more Americans to get outdoors and um, experience nature. At this point, the outdoor industry was in its infancy, and really only for the wealthy looking for specialty items. But the situation changed for the industry and the enthusiasts alike after World War II. Not only is there an increasing amount of land being set aside as public land that had recreational access as a part of it, but there were a lot of developments when it came to defining what counted as wilderness, right? The Wilderness Act of 1964 was an important part of that, but it was really the culmination of many decades of activism, not the start of the conversation. After World War II, affordable gear became available to more people. But other factors continued to play a major role from this time well into the 1970s, as national sentiment and policy changed, and as baby boomers, the largest generation America had ever had, came of age. The notion that came about, not just because of Earth Day in 1970, but around that time, that Americans should be aware of the natural resources that they have, that they're valuable and important for people's health and also for their enjoyment, is one reason that outdoor recreation started to take off during that decade. Another important reason is because of baby boomers' experiences as children going car camping and on road trips to national parks affecting what their interests were when they came of age in the early 1970s. So I've talked to many folks who describe their early experiences being introduced to outdoor activities and how they took those on in a new way once they were making their own decisions about vacation time. Running parallel to this trifecta of cultural shifts and enthusiasm for outdoor pursuits were the innovators. Small outdoor brands and tinkerers making gear lighter, warmer, and drier by leaps and bounds. So I think one of the important things to recognize is that though many of the brands that are beloved, right, that you would find in my closet or yours to this day, while they might have been founded in the late 60s or early 1970s, they were drawing on a much longer tradition and they were inspired by companies that came beforehand. So to answer that question about the 1970s boom, we really ought to look earlier to the 50s and 60s and what kinds of companies were popular during that era. So some of the best examples of companies where the entrepreneurs were inspired by army surplus, perhaps even got their start reselling old military clothing and equipment, but then quickly pivoted to new kinds of designs, are places like Jerry or Hollybar in Boulder, Colorado, as well as Kelty um, from Southern California, right? Kelty packs or a uh, Hollybar sleeping bag are really good examples of outdoor equipment that were vastly superior and more comfortable, warmer, drier, you know, take your pick, uh, to the military clothing and equipment that had come before. But importantly, 
these were quite specialized kinds of products that came at a high price, right? They were made usually in someone's home basement or garage. And initially, the innovators were selling to their friends or to their colleagues or to people they knew from their own outdoor clubs and activities. That really had a limited kind of reach. And it was only in the era that we're talking about, by the late 60s and early 70s, that companies like this, as well as new folks who were inspired by their example, started to form a much broader set of companies that were able to ramp up production and sell to a wider range of people. Often, though not always, for a more affordable price. According to Rachel, getting outside has always gone hand in hand with modern commercialization. As people moved from the farm to the city, our instinct for camping, cycling, and other outdoor activities was an instinct to also gear up. Getting back to nature meant going shopping for Americans, but that wasn't new in the 1970s either. That was That's one of the major insights from my research, uh, something that surprised me, in fact, because I expected to see a transition, right, from a, a wilderness experience that was really about escape to one that became commercial over time as we approached the end of the 20th century. And that's very much not the story. In fact, in the 1920s, in the auto camping days, when nearly 10 or 15% of the U.S. population was going camping every year, the outdoors was very much a part of consumer culture. So outdoor recreation was uh, deeply integrated into the world of mass production and standardized goods. And Americans began to see recreation in nature as a kind of commodity. In other words, acquiring goods in order to have that experience was a central part of what it meant to be in the outdoors. So baby boomers were coming of age at this time. They were getting outside more. Um, they were creating these companies and they making these products and providing a lot of innovation. Um, but I'm interested, who exactly was buying and what did that marketing look like? Were those the same people? Was there overlap there? You would be hard-pressed to find a diverse representation of the American population in 1972 in an REI catalog. In fact, I think in the early 70s, they might still have been selling Austrian feathered caps and lederhosen as a part of their offerings. And so in the vision of a lot of outdoor companies, getting back to nature was very much an experience for white and wealthy Americans. That didn't mean those were exclusively who did the activity, but often that was the image reflected in the catalogs and magazines that people would pick up on a daily basis. Rachel says that while there was a small effort among the larger companies to represent non-white people in their modeling choices, it did not reflect any deeper strategy towards long-term inclusivity or diversity. I think understanding whiteness and uh, the American wilderness experience goes, we have to go much, back much further than marketing strategies of the 1970s. And uh, and, and that's because um, it's impossible to understand what it means to go camping without looking at the legacy of colonialism in this country, right? The notion that there are wild and untouched places is premised on erasing Native peoples from the landscape. And so the earliest outdoor companies, right, responding to the interest in hunting, fishing, and camping vacations after the Civil War relied on this mythology, right? The erasure of the native past and a celebration of a white man's frontier where he could prove his masculinity, where he could kind of 
escape from the um, stultifying effects of an urban environment and recover some of his vigor, that has shaped our outdoor experience ever since. And so white consumers look to products that harken back to a Native American past with great interest in the 19th and 20th century. Um, This is what one historian, Phil Deloria, calls the practice of white Americans of playing Indian or putting on temporarily the dress and goods of a often pretty vague uh, Native past, right? Not, Not a specific kind of tribe, but rather kind of, you know, a stereotypical notion of what India's meant to white America in order to kind of recapture some of the qualities they think helped to make America what it was. So the way I see that is in the early 20th century, many products are marketed using kind of tropes of uh, Indianness. So for instance, there's a, the Trapper Nelson Indian Packboard um, was designed by a white man, but the fact that it has this name Indian Packboard shows a couple of things. One, um, the man who designed it got his initial idea from someone who was native to Alaska, who had a, you know, a backpack with different materials, but the basic design was what he was inspired by. But also that Americans in far-flung places, far away from the Inuit of Alaska, would be interested in a pack because it had Indian in the title, right? That signaled some kind of authenticity Uh, some kind of realness or connection to the American past, even as it was also representative of contemporary modern technology. Capitalizing off of this false narrative of the wild frontier, the outdoor industry, Rachel says, has only gotten bigger since the 1970s. Brands have gained relevance as status symbols beyond the trail. So what did the outdoor boom of 2020, fueled by a global pandemic, mean for the industry and consumers? I do think that, you know, there have been some interesting commentaries on like the outdoor gear boom, right? Like we haven't seen anything like this in some ways since the 1970s, especially with bicycles. I I think the parallels that folks have drawn between the bike boom of the 70s, especially during the oil crisis and 2020 are apt parallels. However, I I think ultimately I would want to go back to the earliest part of our conversation where we started talking about how consumer culture became intertwined with this commodified outdoor experience dating back to the 1920s. That means that many of these activities, right, the very fact that I think I want to bike right now, which I do, (laughs) um, you know, doesn't preclude the free outdoor exercise that's close to home, right? And that can be true for people living in all sorts of circumstances all over the United States. However, I think the acquisitiveness of our back to nature experience mean that like more than other countries, right? People turn to nature, but they didn't turn to nature. They turned to buying for going back to nature. And that's a particularly American story. Even in like this kind of uh, global emergency that there's something comforting about buying a tent right? That it feels like that's going to offer a salve that no other acquisition can is a remarkable feeling that these companies have created in us over the last century. Like Dr. Finney, Dr. Gross doesn't want to see the racial justice movement of our current times end up as a marketing campaign that lasts just a couple of years in the outdoor industry. It's tip of the iceberg stuff. 
Instead, she wants change below the surface. I don't, I'm not particularly interested in any kind of uh, short and consumer-oriented campaign to say, look, we love diversity or, or anything like that. I, I don't think that actually is, is deep enough or interesting enough to, <laughs> to warrant um, you know, our exploration. Instead, I think the kind of slower work, the harder work that's going on internally at many companies where they're reflecting on who they hire, how they hire them, and what kinds of criteria they consider in terms of promotion, those things will ultimately have a difference on what it means for me as an outdoor consumer to be in a, you know, in a, in, you know, a consumer in a world that celebrates a broad swath of Americans and not just a narrow set in their history. So in other words, I'm not sure that I have seen anything of note in the last year that shows that the outdoor industry is responding in a deep way to these hugely important um, protests for social change when it comes to racial justice. That doesn't mean it's not happening, but I, I think in many ways, anything that's gonna reach me, right? An ordinary consumer and person who's you know interested in the history of the outdoors, um, it wouldn't be meaningful, right? Because it would be about showing that off rather than doing the deep reflection work and culture changing within the institution that can take years or decades. While the deep work brands need to do to reckon with systemic racial injustice at an institutional level won't be externally visible for years, what we can do presently is look at how industry support of those who are already doing the work is shifting. Eyes are being opened, apertures are widening. Folks are trying to listen, interested in listening, even if they're not listening. They're interested in listening, you know, and that, that's a step, right? Yeah, that's what I'll say. My name is Devin Cowens. My pronouns are she, her. I am a connector, event planner, community organizer, gravel cyclist, and bike packer. Even before the larger industry shifts of the last three years, Devon was a dynamo in the cycling and bike travel community. She's a leader of an inclusive chapter of Radical Adventure Riders in Atlanta, a member of the RAR gravel race team, and so much more, all while holding down a full-time job. I'm riding my bike more. It feels like 10 years has passed, and it's been two. But um, I'm riding my bike more. I think it's, you know, in deep pandemic, it, it... became even more of a source of healing and joy despite what was going on. And I will be honest, after Ahmaud Aubrey was murdered, wasn't far from Atlanta where I live. Um, I didn't go outside for three weeks. And I was at that time living in a small apartment and, you know, in a pandemic. And I was riding outside every day by myself just to sort of get out and be in nature and think and meditate. And when that happened, it really was very affected by that. It was like, how can I, you know, ride my bike in this sort of quiet rebellion, um, but also feel safe um, and also turn to the bike for healing and joy and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I started just um, 
focusing on my community group of our Atlanta and putting on events and, and then pandemic, we were doing some virtual events and working on growing the community and connecting with folks for support and getting gear donations, you know, wanting to work on this, this gear library sort of idea. And I was attending some bike races and joined a gravel team. And around that time, joining the team and attending races and working on RAR Atlanta stuff, I started being asked to uh, add meaningful commentary to the space of, you know, inclusivity and bike uh, spaces. And um, fast forward to sort of fall of 2021, a friend approached me and asked if I had a bike sponsor for 2022. And at that time, I decided to leave the gravel team because I wanted to have a little more flexibility, what I could do in Atlanta and, and focus on the Southeast, because it feels like an under an area that has been, um, you know, people often forget about straight up. That's the, the short answer. So I was like, you know, these, the team was great. It taught me a lot. I learned so much, but I was like, I, I want to focus on, you know, this area. And so, um, I, you know, am now have a few bike sponsors. I, I decided that I wanted to, you know, go freelance, um, get a few bike sponsorships and then I guess be a sponsored athlete. I'm calling myself an athlete now and um, be able to community organize. But yeah, so I, I've partnered with Diamondback Bikes, um, Velocio Cycling Imperial, uh, SRAM, Kamut, Untapped Maple, and Bivo, which they make um, sustainable water bottles. And that has allowed, allowed me to transition out of um, you know, full-time salaried work to um, focus on building community, working in our Atlanta, um, and, uh, you know, attending bike events that are both fun and that are working to expand access and uh, inclusivity and create welcoming spaces for folks like myself. Devin calls herself a non-competitive athlete. She's not out there to win races, and competition isn't what gets her on the bike in the first place. But with the support of industry sponsors, She's out there doing something arguably more important, building safe, supportive spaces for Black, Brown, and LGBTQ cyclists in the Atlanta area. Yeah, so, you know, when we started and I gave my bio, I called myself a connector, um, which is a word I really enjoy because it does, it does, I do value connecting people to resources, things, ideas, each other. It feels like my life's work, really. I just love that so much. And a lot of these partnerships uh, started from pre-existing relationships, frankly. All of these sort of sponsors have values alignment, right? Maybe that word is thrown around too much, but all of the, the sponsors that I've connected with, I, I you know, appreciate their values and ethos and it worked for me, right? So I had these relationships kind of said, hey, you know, I'm looking to do this to go full-time, quote-unquote, riding, bikepacking, community organizing, community organizers aren't getting it, getting into it for the checks, you know? So um, mm -hmm. I was like, if I can get, you know, money to, to live, I can focus more time on these efforts in a way that sort of allows me to do what I want to do. You know, I've worked hard in my life and I feel like I'm working hard on this and it doesn't feel the same, right? It's like I'm working on something that actually, it's, it just means something different than the other work I've done, right? Devon's Atlanta chapter of Radical Adventure Writers was one of the first individual chapters established since the organization was founded in 2017. 
RAR's mission statement is to center gender inclusivity and racial equity in cycling and the outdoors. They do this by providing education, resources, and support for the community and the industry. Devon says her sponsorships enabled her to focus more time and energy on making the Atlanta chapter into a well-resourced and community-focused fixture. Our Atlanta is, we've just, you know, gotten a physical space. We were operating kind of nebulously and out of my basement, which I don't want to do anymore. Um, so we got a physical space and we're, we basically launched a gear library. Now we have physical space for that gear library. What's a gear library? Gear library is allowing for folks to, who are interested in bikepacking or really even like anything cycling related can rent stuff out free of charge and decide if they want to do this thing, you know, without the financial commitment. But we're doing sort of an open shop space where you can come and work on your bike. Um, we'll have two mechanics on our leadership team and come work on your bike. We can sort of get you sorted during specific windows of time. Then we'll also lead like sort of Skillshare sessions out of that space. And then we do our monthly rides or monthly happy hours and events that aren't centered around the bike. You know, it started as, you know, bikes, but it, it's much more than that. Um, you know, the community, right? The community building aspect of it. All of these pieces and ideas, you know, take time, resources, structure, process. And so each of my sponsors in some way are, are, are supporting that. It's, it's a community and it needs to be nurtured and cared for and given attention to. And that takes time and resources. While Devin's ability to shift towards meaningful work is important for the cycling community, American culture as a whole hasn't shifted. As Devin points out, the outdoors is not a safe place for everyone. Outdoor industry, outdoors has, has not been a typically a safe space for folks of color, right? Look at Jeremy Spencer. And that is very real. I've been I've been sort of saying quiet rebellion, right? Because it's a space that's like you don't belong here, right? Like bottom line, that's what has historically been said. Some folks are still saying that, right? Um, and so I think it's the act of riding one's bike outdoors and one's relationship self. It's like this is a quiet rebellion. It's like I'm here. I'm going to be here. I I've been here. My ancestors, our history. We've been here. We've been outside. You know, to ride a bike outside to like have that sort of liberation and that that quiet rebellion. It's it's so many things. It's not just like, I'm going to ride my bike today. I mean, it can be that too, right? It doesn't always have to be like the the heaviness of that, right? It, it, it can be wrapped up into a, a number of things. So I think that um, there's so much there. And so to be in this like hella white space where someone's like, you don't belong here. It's like, you you're working from like the colonizer's playbook, right? It's like, no, you've, taken this and made it your own, co-opted it, right? Like the others we talked to for this episode, Devin sees a meaningful shift towards equity and justice in the outdoor industry as a long game. So first I'll say two years is not a lot of time, even though even though it's felt like an eternity. I mean, really, not a lot of time. Um, I think I saw this trend of folks were like sort of scrambling and then there was like really good momentum. I think that momentum has faded naturally. That's how these things work, right? I do think that I've seen a number of my, my friends and acquaintances I've met, both in person and over the internet. Folks have been able to connect with brands and been able to 
get contracts and um, become ambassadors and get resources uh, reallocated to their communities. That has been um, great to see. I think that I've seen a lot more folks get into, a lot more black and brown folks get into gravel riding and attending races and um, have that experience of like having bike joy. And I've, I've loved seeing that. Um, you know, I think the industry is, has a lot of work to do and I think that's gonna take a long time. I think often folks wanna make change and then they're like, okay, what do we need to do now? And it just doesn't happen like that. It's kind of, it's a long game, right? I'd love to see more follow through and, and more hiring practice changes. I'd love to see more black and brown folks giving, adding thoughtful commentary and insights into the bike world that just aren't around DEI. And I'm seeing a lot of information sharing and knowledge sharing within black and brown communities around brands and advocating for yourself and support um, mentorship. And that has been great because I do think happy to see that in some of the circles that I run in, the folks are saying, you know, here's something I want to do, a project I have in mind, some, you know, community I want to support and, and here's what I need and here's what it's going to cost or here's the, the value and, you know, someone should support this. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode. We so can't wait for you to hear all six. Friction Shift is hosted by me, Jess Suffers, and edited by Becca Zook. Becca and I also co-produced the show. Production assistance for this series was provided by Ambar Johnson, and the incredible music you hear throughout is from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Lena Tabebe, Dr. Carolyn Finney, Dr. Rachel Gross, and Devin Cowens. For show notes, information about our guests, and to learn more about the topics and projects we discussed in this episode, please visit our website, frictionshift.org. That's frictionshift.org.